Well, good morning, church. Before we uh, consider God's word together, I do want to recognize that uh, Humberto and Lola Perez, this is their last Sunday with us. Um, they've been regular members. I don't know how long you guys have been members. In a, five years. All right, five years. So um, they've been with us for five years. They're moving up toward Baltimore. And so if you can catch them on your way out from six feet apart, um, let them know that you will miss them. Um, they've been a blessing to us as a church, and we just want to recognize and affirm and thank you guys for your ministry to Hamilton Baptist Church, and we're uh, sending you off in love and hopes to find another uh, gospel-preaching, gospel-believing church, which we know will be blessed by having you and your family there as well, and so thank you guys. And so we're going to say a word of prayer for them in a the moment, uh, but we just want to recognize that as well. Also today, it may look a little odd, we're going through John, and now we're going to jump into Mark chapter 10. You may say, that seems rather random. Well, that's because it is. Um, There's a bit of a schedule change uh, last minute. Um, Regardless, I'm excited to preach uh, again to you scripture, um, and we'll be in Mark chapter 10. But before we get started, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day where we can gather, the Lord's Day, to worship you. And Father, we... We thank you for, for the members of Hamilton Baptist Church, and Father, specifically, we thank you for the Perez family. We thank you for your grace in their life. We thank you for calling them here, um, although we may want them longer. We thank you for their season of faithfulness, of ministry, of serving one another in this church. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless them, and we pray that you would help them as they seek to find another church, and we pray that that transition would go easy and smoothly, that they would be able to, to get plugged in and build relationships and, and serve there. And so, Father, we thank you for them, and uh, Father, we, we thank you as we come to your word. We thank you again for giving us your word, and we pray that you would teach us, show us what we need to change, and through the power of your spirit, give us the ability to do so. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 356 BC, there was another baby boy who entered the world. But it wouldn't take long to recognize that this wasn't your typical baby boy or your average child. At a young age, this little boy was actually tutored by a name uh, a man named Aristotle. And when he was only 16 years old, his father, who was a king at the time, went away to a foreign land and and left this young 16-year-old in charge of the empire. What would you do if you were in charge of the empire at 16 years old? Well, this 16-year-old boy thought it would be a good idea to show his dad and everybody else what he was made of. So he led a cavalry against a vicious enemy and completely decimated them. A few years later... His father would be assassinated, and at only the age of 20, this young guy claimed the Macedonian throne and would become king. He got to work fast and began to expand this Macedonian empire rapidly. In 13 short years, he amassed the largest empire in the entire ancient world. It was unlike anything they've ever seen before. It covered over 3,000 miles. And he did this without the benefit of modern technology and weaponry. 
No one had ever seen a ruler quite like this before, and even we read back in history about him. Charismatic, brilliant, diplomatic. This man's name was Alexander. Of course, most of us know him, Alexander the Great. History even reports that, quote, a most agreeable odor exuded from Alexander's skin and that his breath and his body all over was so fragrant as to perfume the clothes with which he wore. So the guy even smelled good. (laughs) Intelligent, powerful, not allowing anyone to get in the way to achieve these greatness, these incredible accomplishments. That's greatness. And this is still much of how we think about greatness today. Whether it's our favorite politician, our favorite athlete, or celebrity, we still view greatness in a similar way as we do Alexander the Great. However, I want to suggest this morning that this view of greatness is not all it's cracked up to be. To begin with, Alexander had a bit of a darker side to him. He possessed a ferocious temper and from time would arbitrarily murder those who were close to him, even friends. And toward the end of his many military campaigns, he senselessly slaughtered thousands of people whose only crime was being in his way. This leads many to ask, was Alexander really great? It really begs the question, what what is greatness? What is true greatness? What does it look like, and how does that affect the way in which we live our lives? Well, our passage today in Mark chapter 10 actually talks about greatness. Jesus himself talks about greatness, and he helps us understand what greatness is not, and he helps us understand what greatness is, and it affects how we live our lives. And so if you would turn to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10 And we'll be covering verses 35 through 45, but before we we read that passage, let me fill you in on what's going on in the Gospel of Mark so far. So the news of Jesus, if you're you're reading the Gospel of Mark, it's action-packed. It's the shortest Gospel that we have out of the four. And you find the word immediately or straightforward used around 40 times. It's action-packed. It doesn't give us as much dialogue as some of the other Gospels. Not that they're um, disagreeing with each other. It's just more compact, more fast-paced. So Mark's leading us through. And the news of this Jesus guy from Nazareth is spreading all over Israel as he goes from town to town preaching, healing people, casting out demons, performing many other miracles, all while training his disciples. But it's also crystal clear what's happening as the news of Jesus is spreading, that Jesus is on a mission that's taking him to Jerusalem. Thus far in Mark's gospel, if you were to read the first nine chapters, you would see that Mark records what we'd call two passion predictions. In other words, Jesus predicted as he was going to Jerusalem that he was, one, going to Jerusalem, and that when he got to Jerusalem, he would be handed over, and he would die, and he would rise again. Twice Mark has told us that so far. And our passage today, where we'll pick up reading, actually comes just after the third and final prediction, And it's the most detailed. So we're actually going to begin reading in verse 32. So Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through verse 45. 
Hear the word of the Lord, Mark 10, 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hands or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what is Mark trying to get across as he records this passage, this section of Jesus' teaching to his disciples. Well, here's what I think it is. So let me give you the, the main idea, and then we'll walk through it together. So if you could summarize this, here it is. Don't settle for a distorted view of greatness. Rather, embrace greatness as defined and displayed by the cross of Christ. Let me say that again, what's happening here. Don't settle for a distorted view of greatness. Rather, embrace greatness as defined and displayed by the cross of Christ. And so that's how we're going to walk through this passage in three parts. We're going to see greatness distorted, greatness defined, and greatness displayed. So first, let's think about greatness distorted or twisted greatness. You see there in verse 35, following Jesus' passion prediction, that he's going to die... Jesus hardly gets the words out of his mouth when James and John come up to Jesus with their blank check that they want Jesus to sign. See what they say. We want you to do, verse 35, whatever we ask. It's rather bold, isn't it? But Jesus allows the question, and look how he responds. What do you want me to do for you? Verse 36. And it's here where I think we usually think, silly disciples, what's wrong with them? They don't get it. 
Jesus just told them he's going to die and rise again, and they're asking Jesus for a personal favor. I'm glad I'm not like them. That's sometimes how we read scripture, is it not? We read it and we think, wow, I'm glad I'm not like those guys. And we do that sometimes even today as we judge others. But I want to say, let's hold up and let's pause here for a moment before we think that way. Because how would you respond to that question? You ask Jesus, I need you to do something for me. He says, what do you want? And the one who's working miracles, he's raised the little girl to life earlier in Mark, it's powerful. He asks you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you respond to that? What would you want Jesus to do? You know, maybe an easier life? Maybe some more money? Maybe a little bit more health? Some of those things are necessarily bad. But maybe a question that may be more real to us is, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? Prayer often reveals our desires. Prayer is like a mirror into our heart. It shows what's really going on. And so, just some diagnostic questions for us to consider. Do you often pray for God's kingdom, that is his rule, his reign, his goodness, do you pray for that to come to earth like Jesus taught us to pray? Do you pray for others? Or are most of your prayers about you? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about you. You should pray about you. But what I'm asking is what dominates your prayers? It can, be, it can help you see what your heart's really thinking, what you're really longing for, what you really want. The glory of God and the good of others? Or is it merely your own self-interest? We were made to love God and love one another, but sin turns our attention in on ourselves. And this is evident in James and John. Listen to their request. Here, here it is. Verse 37. Allow us to sit one at your right and one at your left. Now, remember those words. One at your right, one at your left. In your glory. They're asking, or really insisting to Jesus, to be in the highest place of honor, to be in the top rank. After all, Jesus was proclaiming and preaching about this kingdom that he was bringing in. And we all know what a kingdom means. There's an order of authority in a kingdom. You have people on top, you have people somewhere in the middle, and you have people down here. And James and John are saying, Jesus, we want to be up here with you. We want to be at the top. Greatness. James and John most likely thought that Jesus, as we've talked about uh, a few other weeks ago in, in the Gospel of John, the, the distorted view of the Messiah, the promised one who was going to usher in God's kingdom and defeat his enemies, they probably had a distorted view of what the Messiah was really to be. And they were maybe expecting Jesus to overtake the Romans and they were ready to jump on board and fight with Jesus. Or maybe they thought that Jesus, who all this talk about being the Son of Man which should take us back to the book of Daniel, which is describing God himself. And they just saw the transfiguration happen. Maybe they're thinking that Jesus soon, when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to do this transfiguration thing again, you know, with Moses and all the superstars of Israel. 
Only this time it's going to be like national. Everybody's going to see it. So maybe, maybe they want to be there when this happens. Either way, it's clearly not good motives as we'll see from Jesus' rebuke. They wanted to be the ones standing beside Jesus when, when he's crowned king. So their concern for their own status and greatness was, was blinding them from really seeing God's plan unfolding. And sin does that, doesn't it? Sin is blinding. Sin distorts the greatness of God and disregards others. We were created to know God personally, love one another, rule over creation. I suggest that's great. That's awesome that God created us in his image to love him, serve others, and rule over creation. That's great. So I want to suggest that greatness is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin has twisted our desire so that now we want others to recognize our greatness, to sing our praises, and to follow us. But here's the thing about that. It never stops. It's never satisfied. Wives, you all know your husbands, they stuff themselves on Thanksgiving. And you may have heard the phrase, I will never eat again. Two hours later, you know who's back in the fridge. Same way with sin. We think it's going to satisfy us. Then we're going to have this great feast. It looks so good. It'll give me what I want. You'll always want more. Maybe you've heard about the clever salesman who closed hundreds of sales with this line. Let me show you something several of your neighbors said you couldn't afford. There's something in us that wants to be great as long as we're greater than others. In verse 38, Jesus confirms their distortion. He says, you do not understand what you are asking. You guys, slow down. You do not understand. And Jesus goes on to explain their folly by unpacking really what they're asking. They don't understand. He explains the folly of their request. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they reply, yep, we sure are. As if they're so blinded by their desire for greatness that they're just hearing Jesus answer yes. This brings up the question, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? We know later in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus would pray in the garden in chapter 14 If possible, praying to the Father, remove this cup. Drinking the cup was not a refreshment. Drinking the cup was judgment. Specifically, God's judgment on sinners. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, describes the Lord as holding a cup of foaming wine in his hand. And when he pours it out, the wicked will drink it also talks about in Jeremiah 25. So the cup here, and we'll see from the Old Testament, and we see later in the Gospel of Mark, is clearly a sign of, of judgment. God's wrath, his good wrath being poured out on sin, sinners. It's the cup. So what's the baptism that he's talking about, though? Well, here, baptism, as, as we think about it today, is, is not a celebration of of death, of, sorry, a celebration of life, 
But here it's referring to death in this context. Back to Psalm. Psalm 88, 7 says, Your wrath, Lord, lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. There's this idea of being submersed in, in the wrath of God. The cup and baptism are not pleasant experiences, but judgment, the wrath of God on sinners. And unaware of the full implications of their answer, they say, yep, we are able. We're ready to go, Jesus. Again, they were probably thinking about a political takeover. They may have been ready to fight with Jesus, as we see Peter would let ready to be fight when he pulls out his sword. Jesus explains that they will also drink and be baptized. So he says, look, you will, you will drink this cup. You will baptize the same way I'm baptized. And Jesus seems here to be referring to some type of suffering that they will face as his followers and perhaps dying for the sake of the gospel. We know that James, fast forward here, would actually go on to be the first apostle to die for his faith. So there's a suffering, certainly not to the extent of Jesus would suffer, but being united to Jesus, suffering is involved. They did not understand what they were asking for. By this time, the other disciples hear what's going on, and it says they're indignant. In other words, they're not cool with it. They don't like what's happening. They don't like this conversation that they're hearing. They were annoyed. They thought something unfair was happening. They probably weren't mad at James and John saying, you shouldn't disrespect Jesus like that. Honestly, they were probably upset that James and John beat them to it. So as the tension rises in this scene, you can feel it, you know, Jesus, do whatever you, we, we ask for you, okay? What do you want? We, want? we want to sit at your right hand. We want to sit at your left. You don't understand what you're asking. There's this tension rising. Now, now the other guys are getting angry, and you can feel it rising up. And what does Jesus do? He gathers them around, and he begins to teach them. He begins to deconstruct their ideas and replace it with something far more beautiful. I say, that's what Jesus does. That's what Holy Scripture does. It, it deconstructs our ideas, our selfish ambitions, our sinful notions. It's going to tear those down. There's going to be things we look at and we disagree with. But Jesus replaces it with something more beautiful. And that's what we're about to see. So as the tension rises, Jesus calls everyone around and offers a new way of life. A true way of greatness. So we saw greatness distorted, but now we move in and see greatness defined. Greatness defined. Verse 42. Jesus called to them and said, You know what the world is like. The rulers are like tyrants. You work hard, you get to the top. Why do you work hard and get to the top? So that you can be the boss. So that you can tell others what to do. You outdo the next person so that you can tell them what to do. Greatness is being in authority over others for your own benefit. That's what Jesus is saying. That's, that's the worldview. That's what's out there is greatness is being over others so that you can tell them what to do for your own benefit. Doesn't this sound familiar to us? Ever hear of a boss abusing or mistreating an employee? Ever hear of a husband physically or verbally abusing his wife to usurp his authority? Ever hear of parents neglecting their children because it doesn't benefit them? Of course we have. If we can use our status 
our position of authority, it's not the position that's wrong, but if we can use that for our gain, for our benefit, you bet we will as sinners. Our desire for greatness is really the result of of this broken world. Some of those things I mentioned, we see it all over the place, and it's because of our sinful, selfish desires. And even positions of authority, which God gives. Bosses are good. Government is good. Fathers are good. But these rules of authority and leadership, they're distorted by our sinful, selfish desires. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not who you are. They do that. They act this way. But you, this shall not be among you. Here Jesus turns our understanding of greatness on its head. You want to be great? Do you have the desire? Notice that Jesus doesn't dismiss the desire, but defines what it really looks like. You want to be great? Here it is. Whoever would be great among you, verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, sorry. And then whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus is defining greatness as found in service, as in sacrifice. That is giving up your desire for the good of somebody else. Jesus says, that's what greatness is. This is a new way of life. This is what it ought to look like in God's kingdom. Remember, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, But I say to you, turn the other cheek. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said, you've heard how the hypocrites pray. But I say to you, pray like this. Jesus is constantly deconstructing our ideas, our values, our sinful, selfish desires, and showing us the true way to live, the true way of life. What does it look like to be redeemed by God? Once you have faith in Christ, repented of your sins, you're in his kingdom. You live for him. Jesus is showing his disciples this new way of life. Your natural self will be like that. But you as my disciples, Jesus says, you're fundamentally different. You are called to a life of service, for in that is true greatness. Imagine with me for a moment a world that actually embraced all of this. Seriously, a world that looked for the interest, individuals everywhere, looking for the interest of others before themselves. Politicians would really be for the people. Imagine a place where those in authority or leadership possessed a servant's heart. I'm sure many of you have have actually seen this. Imagine a place where husbands lead, protect, love their wives self-sacrificially. Imagine a place where parents love their children. They're patient with them. They're merciful with them without using them for their own gain or seeing them as something that gets in the way. Imagine a place where friendships and relationships can be loving, genuine, not competitive. Imagine a community of people, just imagine this, a community of people who actually embrace this view of greatness And seek to serve one another, not out of their own interest, but out of the interest of others. I want to suggest that's what we're looking forward to one day when we're ultimately with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, right? But let's not miss what's supposed to be happening 
here and now before that happens. This type of gospel community, this new way of life that Jesus is describing, should exist here. Local churches. You think of God's kingdom, it's spread through local churches. The, you could call them the outposts of his kingdom. Local churches are called to do this. Remember Philippians 2, Paul writing to the Philippian church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for your own desires, but through love serve one another. Churches, in a sense, should be like time travelers, right? I want to see what heaven's going to be like. I want to know what the future's going to be like. What if we could pull some of that back, certainly not perfect, and place it here in I don't know, Hamilton, Virginia. That's what we should be thinking about our church. You want to see the future kingdom of God? You want to get a taste of it? You want to see the beauty of it? You want to see a place where people are loving and serving one another, forgiving one another? Come to our church. Watch how we do life together. Watch how we love and serve one another. You know, I just want to say, good job, church. Keep it up. But we always have ways to grow, right? This is why we constantly need to be reminded of this. I'm thankful that we are a loving community. We serve one another. We help one another. We give. But let's keep growing and growing and growing in that. Let's give. Let's serve. Let's lay down our preferences for the good of others. Let's lay down our self-regard for ourselves and proclaim the gospel. What a view of greatness. But... The problem is, we see how it's distorted. We see how Jesus defined. And that looks awesome. But you, all of us, me, we can see this view and we can think, all right, let's do it. And we clinch our fists. We get to work. What's going to happen? We're going to fail. We're going to fail over and over and over again. We actually can't do this. Even when we are doing really good, pride and desire creeps in. The imperfection of other church members, including ourselves, is real and can discourage our service. But Mark gives us good news. Mark gives us gospel. Jesus not only defines greatness, he displays it. And this ultimate display of Jesus' greatness actually is powerful enough to crush our sin and impart to us Jesus' life, his righteousness to us. So finally, we see greatness displayed. Greatness displayed here in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Earlier we talked about the cup and the baptism that Jesus was referring to. They symbolize judgment being taken out on sinners. But did you notice that Jesus is the one drinking the cup and expecting this baptism? But why is the Son of God the perfect one? Why is he taking this cup? In whom there is no sin. Why is he taking on the wrath of God? Answer is verse 45. And I think this is one of the most beautiful verses in scripture. I say that a lot, but I mean it this time. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. It implies there was a bondage. There was a price to be paid. You hear the word ransom, maybe if, if you've been reading your Bible, you think back to the book of Exodus. 
What was going on in Exodus? Well, the Israelites, God's people, were in exile, were in bondage to Egypt. In fact, they were not only in bondage, they were in slavery. They were building another kingdom, we could say. They were in bondage. And the story of Exodus is the story of redemption. God came in and rescued his people from this powerful, powerful enemy. And he set them free. Well, in the same way, something of a new Exodus is happening here, Jesus is describing. Jesus didn't come because he needed something from you or myself. Jesus came to serve. That's what it says. And there's no greater display of selfless service than what happened at Calvary. For it was on the cross that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. He gave his life as a payment in our place. Notice that Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life. He willingly gave his life as a ransom. This helps us understand why Jesus is drinking the cup and experiencing the baptism. This judgment of God wasn't for him, but it was for you. It was for me. Because of our sin, our selfishness, it's inherent to us. We're we're born dead in our sins, which means we're, we're, we're growing a debt that we cannot pay. We're earning God's wrath. His judgment, because he's a good judge. He doesn't let any sin go unpunished. And you and I both know that we've all sinned and fallen way short of God's standard multiple, multiple, multiple times. We deserve his judgment. But Jesus, by dying a death that he did not deserve, paid a debt that he did not owe. The ransom of Christ's life was paid to God the Father, who accepted it as just payment for the sins of many. Freedom from bondage. Freedom from slavery to sin. A new exodus. So I ask this morning, to to those of you who are here, you may be watching, have you trusted in Christ's work of redemption? Your selfishness, your desires. That, that earns judgment from God. But Jesus is reminding us that can be forgiven through his payment if you will trust him, repent of your sins. And what does this actually do? We read throughout the scripture that this is then the power to live the Christian life, to love one another, to serve one another. How can I love other members of the church? How can you love one another? Even when it's hard, consider the cross. Do you remember that scene on the cross? In chapter 15, Mark tells us that there was a sign placed above Jesus' head on the cross. Do you remember what that sign said? Jesus, King of the Jews. Ironically, they were mocking him, but ironically, he actually was the king. And Mark also tells us something else about that scene on the cross. He says, there were two criminals crucified with Jesus. Do you remember where they were? Mark uses this language to tell us where they were. Mark 15, 27. There was one on his right and one on his left. 
It's used in Mark 15, and it's used in Mark chapter 10. No doubt that Mark is showing us to be in a position with the king, King Jesus, we are called to carry our cross with him. To be in a position with the king, we're called to carry, to suffer with him. When we deny ourselves, when we serve one another, we embody what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This characterized the early church. Do you remember in Acts chapter 5, the apostles led by Peter, they were preaching, they were arrested. And and after all of this going on trial and and facing persecution, Acts 5.41 says this, it says, They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. They realize it's not about me. My life is not ultimately about my own desires, but it's about him. And that's where we find true joy. I wonder, do you find joy in serving others and laying down selfish ideas or ambitions for the good of others? Do you find joy in that? The early church did. Church history shows us many people doing that. Do you find joy in this? If not, let me encourage you, let me encourage myself. Let's consider the cross. For there Jesus offers forgiveness, freedom, power to serve him, to live for him. Some of you maybe need to talk to God about that today. Maybe there's someone in your life who you've been ignoring or thinking or belittling them or judging them. Maybe God's saying, you need need to fix that. You need to reconcile that relationship. Because my community of believers, they love one another. They serve one another. They forgive. I've forgiven you all your sins. Why can't you forgive this person? Maybe there are some of us husbands in here who haven't been loving our wives as we should. Haven't been serving them. Maybe we've been thinking of ourselves more. We need to repent of that. Repent to God. Have a conversation with your wife. Maybe there's wives in here who you haven't been serving or loving your husband well. You've been concerned about your own desires and your motives. After all, you're busy. Maybe today you need to repent to God, repent to your husband, and let God's grace, this God's grace, there's grace to be found in repentance. Children, kids, maybe, maybe you haven't been following mom and dad as you should or listening to them. They, they know better than you, trust me. Maybe today you need to say, hey, mom, dad, I'm sorry I haven't listened to you. I want to follow Jesus, so can you help me think through this better? That's what the cross does. It, it tears down our selfish ambitions and in its, in its place puts something more beautiful, a gospel community, loving, serving one another. So don't settle for a distorted view of greatness, which we'll find everywhere around us. Rather, embrace greatness as defined and displayed at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, time to consider your word. And I pray that you would help us as 
is I believe some things are, are so clearly presented in, in how we should be thinking and living as, as your people that I'm sure there are some of us who, who need to make changes in our life, who need to repent of selfish desires or motives. And so, Father, would you grant us repentance? Would you help us repent of that? Would you eradicate that sin in our lives? And Father, would you fill us with the joy that only you can give us as we seek to serve others, as we seek to put others before ourselves, as Jesus himself came not to serve, be served, but to serve and give his life. May we follow Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.